Thank you, worship team, for leading us into his presence this morning. I'm, one of the, I'm Pastor Rob, one of the pastors here at Bridge, and I just want to say thank you for being with us. And, um, you know, every time I think about that song or I, I hear that song, I think that so oftentimes, like, we get, we don't really understand the meaning of what the song is actually saying, right? And I think that uh, as I was... I saw we were doing that song this morning. I was like, we have to talk about how it's the glo- we say show us your glory. We're saying you're giving God permission to change our heart. You're saying, change me. Change me. Because it's you inside of me that provides hope to those around us. Um, wow. Well, we're going to transition here and uh, transition into, into God's word this morning. And um, thank you for being with us this morning. I'm, I'm excited to share in our next, next section in the book of Acts as we uh, explore, as we've been exploring Acts. And um, if this is your first time with us, welcome. Uh, we're in Acts 15, and so we've been on, in a series on Acts for a while here. And we're looking at the characteristics of the first church. And our, our series is called The Church in Motion and uh, we talked about the church unhindered in the first few chapters, and we talked about, um, well, we actually talked about the church unleashed in the first few chapters, and the church unhindered was the next chapters, meaning that no matter what came their way, the church was unhindered in the movement of the gospel. And, and, and in the last few chapters, we're looking at the church in motion, the church unstoppable. And, um, and you say, that sounds, really famo- that sounds like really close to being unhindered. Well, it is really close. This, the difference is, is like we're looking, at, we're looking at it from the lens of like these are things that could have stopped. Like what we're looking at are situation stories through the book of Acts that, uh, in this section that could have stopped, not just slowed it down, but could have actually stopped the church from spreading, the gospel message from spreading around, around the world. And um, that, the moment, that, that the momentum of this movement, of this New Testament church, is unstoppable. And... Um, so last week, Pastor Paul talked about the church in motion, the unstoppable church stays on mission. And uh, this week, as we dive into Acts 15, we're going to look at the church in motion, the unstoppable church is a unified church. It's a unified church. And um, if you would open your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts 15, and we're going to actually look through a big portion of this this scripture, and if you've read Acts 15 before, you might look at what I'm going to say this morning and say, "Well, that was a different lens to actually look at Acts 15." Um, and, and it probably is a little bit of a different lens. I don't know that I've ever um, heard somebody take this take on Acts 15, but I really believe that that's where uh, where where we're going this morning. So let me bring you up to speed thus far. Uh, we started in Acts 1 because crazy we're in Acts 15, so we started in Acts 1 on a series on Acts. So I felt like you need to know that. So we started in Acts 1. Just kidding. Sorry, that was supposed to be funny. And lighten up, guys. It's okay. We can have fun in church, laugh a little bit. Jesus, in Acts 1, Jesus gives his disciples the largest assignment ever to go into all the world and share the gospel, to be a witness of what they had seen and what they had heard. And, and, and Jesus goes off into heaven, right? Like he floats off into heaven. And, and, and I think if I were the disciples standing there, they'd be like, he said to do what? Like, does he know how big the world is? Does he know who he's asking to do this? Like this group of guys, like not all of them were sometimes made the best decisions. If we look through, look through scripture of these disciples. So how did they do it? And, and I believe that they, they fulfilled this, mess, this, this mission through two ways. First, Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit to be their guide and source of power and strength to fulfill the mission. And second, this group of guys had a solid conviction that Jesus was who he said he was. Period. They had witnessed every miracle Jesus did throughout his ministry. They believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus died and raised from the dead. And that is what sustained them through every obstacle, through every challenge, through every question even that was thrown their way, that is how it's the same. I, I think about Acts 4 when Peter and John were questioned by the religious leaders after they had, had healed a guy going into the temple courts. And I think I, I spoke on this a few, a lot, a lot of weeks ago because we were in 15 and this was in Acts 4. So I spoke on that a, lot, a, few, a, while, a few while back. But 
I, I love, like, their response was, they were like, I get you're much smarter than us, and you have questions that we may not know how to answer, but there's one thing I know to be true. And they're like, they say, Jesus Christ, the guy you crucified, yeah, he raised from the dead. Mic drop. And, like, they're, like, done. They're like, I don't know how to answer your questions. I don't know how to, like, continue to, to debate with you. But I do know one thing. Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus did what he actually did. I witness it. And he raised from the dead. So it doesn't matter what you may question or what you may say. And I believe it's that conviction that changed how they approached questions. And that same conviction is how, what will change how we approach questions problems and questions. See, often the problem is not the questions that are asked. The problem is our lack of certainty in who Jesus really is, that he really is Lord, Savior, Messiah, and that he really did die, was buried, and is raised from the dead, and atoned for the sins of all people, and that he is the only way. And as Pastor Paul said two weeks ago, that's good news. What did he say? And anything else is just news. Yeah. Some of you paid attention two weeks ago. Good job. When this new church in Acts faced obstacles they couldn't overcome, they relied on the Holy Spirit and the conviction of the good news. When they had no money or their leaders were in prison, guess what? They said, yeah, but Jesus rose from the dead and he's going to make it work. Church, if we believe the good news that Jesus is Lord, Savior, Messiah, that he died, buried, and raised from the dead, and that he is the only way, if we believe that and we are empowered by his Holy Spirit, there's not a question or, or obstacle that should come in our way of being an unstoppable church that fulfills the mission. Acts is a story of how this early church community, filled with the Spirit, walking in conviction that Jesus was who he said he, said he was, spread the gospel message around the world. And I love how through the book of Acts we see this the author stop and tell us story after story of God's faithfulness. Really, I mean, that's what it comes down to. Story after story of how, how, how God used a problem that could have altered the course, could have stopped the church, to cont- and used that platform to make the church stronger, right? And so this chapter in, 15, in chapter 15 is actually a big theological debate. So if you're o- open there with me this morning... It's actually a big theological debate. And I want to get past like, the theological debate here, and I want to get to the meaning and the passage of what it actually means for us as a church today. So let's start in Acts 15 and verse 1. And, and I'm going to uh, kind of read a little bit and then stop and like, teach a minute and then read a little bit. So bear with me. I kind of just have your Bibles open and that sort of idea. Because it's a lot, of, a lot of content. If I read all 32, passes, 32 verses and then I come back and try to go, well, you remember in verse 1, it would be like 10 minutes ago we talked about verse 1, Pastor Rob. So just bear with me as we walk through this this morning. So Acts 15 in verse 1, it says, Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. I'm going to stop there for a minute. A lot of the first century Christians in this book of Acts were Jewish. They were Jews who had converted to the way or converted to faith. And and, and the Jews had been raised on the Old Testament law. And one of the most... um, one of the most important or, or the most popular or the most critical New Old Testament laws was that every male must be circumcised and that circumcision was God's given sign to separate the people of God from everybody else on earth, essentially. And so there was a group of new Jewish Christians that were teaching, if you're going to be part of the way, if you're going to be a new believer, if you're going to be a child of God, you must be circumcised. And... I heard someone once say that this is why you see more women and children involved in the church than men. But let's keep reading. Verse 2. This brought, verse 2 says, This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute, and, and they debated with them. So Paul and Barnabas were, an, were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. And, and I think that like, this piece here shows some real respect Instead of formulating their own opinions and arguing about like what is the right way, they went to the leaders of the church and asked questions. They said, "Hey, like 
let's go and let's like, let's dig deep. Like, let's figure this out. Like, let's not, you have your opinion. I have my opinion and let's continue to butt heads and argue and, and, and disagree. Like, let's go, let's go talk to the leaders of the church and let's, let's ask some questions, some clarifying questions. Verse three, it says the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and, the el- and, and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. See, this was a long trip. Like, and I think what is very, very important here is that Paul and Barnabas were on this missionary journey, right? And they had, they had, traveled, they had traveled, traveled out of Jerusalem, and they stopped what they were doing to turn around and go back to Jerusalem to ask a question. Like, think about that, to, to figure out a question. And along the way, they shared testimonies with other believers about what God was doing. The news that people were coming to Christ. See, I, I think what could have easily happened here is they easily could have been like, okay, we're stopping our trip to turn around and go back to Jerusalem. And as they went through all the churches, they easily could have said, can you believe these people from, an, from up in Antioch that came down and were compl- talking about circumcision? And they could have complained all the way back to Jerusalem. But instead... They said, look what God is doing. Look what God is doing. Let's continue on, verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? Stop there for a second. So there were 613 Jewish laws, right? 613, like that's a lot of laws. Like I don't know how many, I mean, I'm sure PA has more laws than that now, but (laughs) just think about it in regards to church. Like we have 613 laws that you have to obey in order to be saved, right? And circumcision was just one of those laws. There were 612 others, but they're really making a big deal out of one of them. And I love in verse 10 when Peter says, this is, my, this is like my favorite part of this passage, where Peter says, I was born a Jew, and I don't know about you all, but I never felt like I was keeping all of those, those laws, all 613 of those laws. No matter how hard I tried to keep the law, I never felt like I was measuring up. And he even points it back to them and goes, did you? Like, were, you were born a Jew just like I was. You grew up in a Jewish household. Were you ever, did you ever feel like you were keeping all 613 of these Jewish laws? And he says, like, if we could barely keep these laws, growing up in a Jewish household, knowing the law inside and out and being taught it from a very early age, why would we expect the Gentiles to keep them? Or why would we expect them to follow them? In verse 11, he says, No, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter says, none of these things could save us. Faith in the work of Jesus Christ is what saved us. Not what we did, but faith in what he has already done. Verse 12. It says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done done among the Gentiles. When they finished, James spoke up. He says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name, from, a, from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and build, rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Says the Lord, who does these things, these things known from long ago. And then James says this, and I think it's like a key point of our passage. It says, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I love that verse. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles 
who are turning to God. In this passage, the, the, these Jewish leaders are, are kind of like a, a stereotype of maybe like the church, right? And the Gentiles are those maybe who are, who are outside the church or are, are, are kind of, yeah, outside the church. Let's talk about outside the church. And I believe that this statement is the core of who the church should be. We should not make it hard for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Any obstacle that we can eliminate, we should. And this is a question that, you know, as a, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, like, that we are often challenged with. Like, do we make Christianity hard for people to turn to God? As a church, are we accepting to those in our community? Do we have unspoken expectations or rules or that people feel like they have to live up to in order to be included in the church. As Christians, sometimes it's easy to project a perfect life, right? Like, we come to church on Sunday mornings, you know, everyone in your family's smiling. That happened for you, right? I mean, that's what happened to me. My teething 10-month-old was smiling all the way in, right? Like, that happens every Sunday. You know, we walk through the door, we shake hands, and we have on this perfect facade of a perfect Christian life, right? And when someone outside the church looks at that and goes, man, you know what? I am nothing like those people. Like, I'm messed up. I don't wake up in the morning. I'm not smiling when I walk into a group of people. And let's be real. I don't even want to walk into a group of people first thing on Sunday morning. I can't identify with who those people are. And in reality, we are a mess as well. We're probably even more of a mess because we've learned how to really put a facade on to cover up the mess that's inside. Does that make sense? Church, it's okay to not be okay. Can we agree on that? Can we agree on that this morning? Yeah. How many of you guys feel like you're not okay this morning? Is that okay? Yeah. I feel like I'm not okay this morning. Don't make it hard for people who are turning to God to follow Jesus. I don't want to make it difficult for those who are struggling with sin who are tur- turning to, to turn to God because we treat their sin different than our own. I don't want to make it difficult for Democrats or Republicans because we water down the gospel message with political positions. I don't want to make it difficult for Giants fans or Patriot fans or Steeler fans because we constantly reference the barely over 500 eagles. <laughs> the point is... the point is we have a message that is life or death and no matter how important we feel it is no secondary message can get in the way of the gospel no secondary message let's jump back into verse 20 it says this it says instead we should write them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality from the meat of strangled animals and from blood For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest of times, and it is read in the synagogues on the Sabbath. So James says, hey, you know what we should do? We should ask them to observe a few things. We're talking about 613. Let's let's do the 613 now. We know that they all, like all the Gentiles know about these few things that he lists here, these, these three things. So abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, stay away from meat of strangled animals. Kind of a weird list if you think about it, but we know that they all know this because it's talked about all the time. Like they, they, they're around the Jews all the time. Like they know the Jewish synagogue. Like it's completely, talk about, completely talked about. But let's break it down into two things, what we're asking the Gentiles to keep. To keep the moral commandments of the law. The moral laws of God don't change. You know, stay away from sexual immorality. He lists that. Lying, murder, stealing, those sorts of big deal. Top ten, you know, ten commandment type ideas. And then number two is keep unity in the church. Eating meat from strangled animals, food polluted by idols, is, would be extremely offensive to the Jewish believers, to other believers. So these are the two things, if not kept, would be detrimental to unity and to spiritual growth. For us to be unified together and for us to grow spiritually. Like, you can't be out there, like, lying all the time if you want to grow spiritually, right? Can we agree on that as a church? Can we agree that you can't be out there, you know, murdering somebody and continue to grow spiritually? Like, you're, you, can't, you, can't, you can't go against the, 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 the moral law of God. And then, can we also agree 
That it affects unity when we know that something offends somebody else, yet we still continue to do it. We know that it offends another believer, yet we still continue to practice, or we still continue to, to do that thing when it's constantly like jabbing. Oh, you know, they're, they're, they go to our church, and I know this really offends them, so I'm going to continue to do it, right? And that's what was happening. Like he says, to keep unity in the church, don't do these few things, because it offends them. Our, this offends them in their culture. Verse 22, it says, Then the apostle and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. To the apostles and elders, your brothers. The apostles and elders, your brothers. To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia. Greetings. We have heard that some of you went from us without authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm the word, of, confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You abstain from food, sacrifice from idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered, delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. See, this portion of scripture, I think, talks about like, some, a bit, it was a big deal to them. And I think in our culture, we have some big deals that cause disunity in the church. In their time, it was, you, had to, you were saved by grace and the 613 laws of Moses. And some believe, and then others believe that grace came through, salvation came through grace alone. And in the end, the church came to an agreement in unity. And in this passage, we see a disunified church become a unified church. And I believe that this pass, in this passage, we see a church in motion, a church that is unstoppable. I believe they really shared three passions that we can kind of pull out that they were really focused on. That they really were like, these are the main points. Like, forget all this mumbo-jumbo about 613 laws and all this. Like, if we focus on these things, then everything else will fall in order. Right? All these other theological debates will fall in order. So let's talk about what I believe that we see, these three passions of a unified church. The church in motion must share a unified passion for outsiders. I believe throughout this passage we see where the focus was not on necessarily, necessarily just my belief, but it was a focus on unbelievers coming to Christ. The Gentiles, right? It was focused on the Gentiles coming to Christ. The New Testament church was on fire, sharing the gospel wherever they went. Chapter after chapter of the books of Acts, there's story after story of people who hear the gospel and are saved. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in your hometown, your region, your country, and to the end of the world. A passion for evangelism. In Acts 15, we see Paul and Barnabas share the gospel while they were like, they were like, hey, we have this big theological debate we need to deal with. But you know what? We're going to share the gospel along the way. And in verse 3, we say, it says, the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This made all the believers glad. All the believers had a passion for seeing the Gentiles come to Christ. It made them glad whenever they heard the stories of how the Gentiles, how outsiders were, were coming into the church. And I believe that this is a tension that every church has, right? It's a t- tension that every church rides on, on, on am I... Am I Am I evangelistic enough? Am I reaching the outsiders enough? Or am I, excuse my maybe very blunt language, pacifying insiders enough? Am I keeping the people in the church happy? And it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it is a tension that I feel as a pastor as well. Because it's easy for us to get stuck in a selfish mindset and think about my own needs. You know, when it comes to church, does this church meet my needs? Does, are they doing the things that, that meet, help me to grow spiritually? And I don't think that we always think about, especially if you've been in the church for a while, 
is this church reaching outsiders? I don't think that's usually the first question that we usually have when we come into a church. We look at, does their kids' ministry good enough? Is their youth ministry good enough? Are they, you know, do they have things to help my family grow? Which are all great things, don't get me wrong. Spiritual growth is very important. But I think one of the things we have to add to our agenda is, are we focused, are we unified around reaching outsiders? Like the church in Acts 15, the church people in the new the new Jewish believers, they got stuck in the past. They got stuck on having to obey the law for salvation, something they had grown up with, something they were used to, something that they were familiar with. And as a pastor, you know, I have my own preferences. And got to be honest, I wanna ma- we want to make the church happy, right? As leaders, like, we don't want you guys all mad at us and complaining and sending us emails and writing us letters and, you know, sending us smoke signals or however you communicate, But I can tell you it cannot come at the expense of a unified passion for the lost. What James said in verse 19 is what we should echo as a church. We shouldn't make it hard for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So constantly, we ask this as a church. Do we make it hard for people to come to Christ? Do we make it hard? I think about... a. I think about an, an, a church whenever I was a youth pastor in, in, out in Pittsburgh, out in New Stanton. And, and our youth ministry was growing, our church was growing, and we were looking for a place for you know, Wednesday night like youth service and, and Wednesday night ministry to take place because we had outgrown our, our facilities. And um, we noticed that a church down the street, not too far away, didn't have much activity during the week. And so we approached them and we asked if they would be willing to let us rent some space, you know. Could we rent some space um, during the week um, so we could have, have uh, our youth services there? And, and the pastor told us how the church was once a thriving church. That at one point they were so thriving they, they showed us where they had built an addition onto the church and where the addition was. And that over the years people were aging and passing away. And they were down to like five or ten people who were still left. And it was a, this was a sad story of when a church becomes stuck in traditions and loses the passion for the lost. They had rooms for kids' classes, but no kids. They had space for youth ministry, but no youth. At one time, they, did, they had a passion for the lost, but they had... They had lost the, the unified passion to see the next generation come to Christ. They had lost their passion for seeing those who are outside the church come to know Jesus. As a church, are we reaching our community that's around us? Are we partaking in the mission that God calls us to, to make disciples in the community that's around us? Are we as a church, are we reaching the next generation? You're the church. You can easily sit there and say, Pastor Rob, that's you. Like, but it's not my job. It's part of my job, but it's not solely my job. It's not solely Pastor Matt's job, Pastor Paul's job, or Pastor Christine's job, right? We're the church. It's our job to reach the next generation in our community. It's our job to reach the outsiders. It's a unified passion that we see in Acts 15 for those who are outside the church. A unified passion for the lost. As believers, as a church, are we unified around a passion for seeing unbelievers come to Christ? Are we unified around a passion for outsiders? See, I believe the church in motion must be unified around a passion for outsiders. Number two, second passion. A church in motion... Shares a, shares a unified passion for the gospel of grace. And see, in verse 1 and 5, the ones calling for circumcision were saved. They believed they were saved by putting their faith in Jesus, but afterwards, they began to fall back into the old life, the Jewish rules, the Jewish rules-based relationship with God. And I think this happens to, to most believers, Right? Like, it happens to, to a lot of people who come, come to Christ and start serving him for a while. Because when we give our lives to Christ, we, 
we have been serving and we've been serving him, we begin to see the good things that come from doing good things, right? Like how many of you guys say, hey, I've seen a good thing come of me doing something really good, right? Like, like we've all been there, right? As if you're a believer in the house, you've been there. But sometimes those good things to us become law. Sometimes those good things become the way of salvation. Circumcision really isn't a big deal to us in the church today, right? But we have our own list. Lists of things that we might say, if you do these things, they'll make you right with God and show that you're a good Christian, right? Things that we things that may have become like law to us. Questions like, do you have a quiet time? Right? Necessary for spiritual growth, not necessary for salvation and heart change. Get it? Good things, not the thing. Do you faithfully attend a community group? How many people have you led to Christ? That's my favorite one. How many people have you led to Christ? Oh, Ouch. Hurts. Do you have a perfect family? Lord, no. Are you involved in ministry? I'm not perfect. How could I have a perfect family? Are you involved in ministry? Things that are good, but for some reason have become the standard of salvation. Some of these things are part of discipleship. Some of them are things that are Part of growing spiritually. And the problem is when we begin to measure our own spiritual lives by these things. Or when we begin to measure and evaluate others' spiritual lives by these same questions. Don't get me wrong. All good with the right perspective. But when they become the yoke that Peter talks about in verse 10, that we put on others, we begin to focus on the gospel of law instead of the gospel of grace. See, this happened to me growing up. Like, I grew up in a very legalistic church that was very law-based. Do these things, and ye shall be saved. Not come to Jesus, and you will be saved. So when I graduated from high school, I ran from a relationship with God, and I ran from the call of God on my life because I said, I will never measure up. I can never, you know, speak as good as what that guy speaks. Or I... I'm messed up. Like, I have addictions. I have things in my life that are not like what they expect. I had issues. I had never read through the Bible before I graduated high school. So, therefore, I was, you know, less. Am I really even saved if I haven't read through the Bible by the time I graduated high school? Like, those are questions that were going through my, would go through my head. Because when we present an essence of Christianity as a bunch of rules to maintain and things to do, We make it hard for them outside, the Gentiles, to believe. Let me remind you that the gospel is this, that you are made right in the eyes of God the moment you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Not when you put your faith in what you are able to do, but in what he has already done. First Peter says, Peter says this in in verse 11 here. He says, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Paul writes in Ephesians and says this, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Heard this illustration. Someone said it like this. The last words on Jesus Christ, the last words of Jesus on the cross were, It is finished, not go fix yourself. That means at any moment, you can be fully right with God, no matter how lost you really are. Church, let's be unified around a gospel of grace and find freedom in that Jesus paid it all and there's nothing more we can do to continue to earn or be good enough in the eyes of God except for putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Everything else will follow. Serving in church, that'll follow. Sharing your faith, that that comes. That'll come. As we grow spiritually. And the last point that I have is very, the last last passion that I have is very closely related, but yet it's different. 
And it's this. It says, The church in motion must be unified around a passion for outsiders. It must have a, a unified passion for the gospel of grace. And finally, the church in motion must have a unified passion for internal heart transformation. See, the gospel's focus is transforming the heart. Jesus said, The essence of the law was to love God and love others, and everything else is an overflow of that. Right? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37-40 says, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, the, and the Bible helps us look, help us, helps us see what love looks like, right? Truth, purity, justice. But at the core, it's a heart of love. And this heart is produced by faith in Jesus Christ. And when we're not unified with a focus on internal transformation and the gospel of grace, we fall into focusing on external behavior modification and the gospel of law. And oftentimes I find it funny when I talk to Christians, and we're surprised when someone who is without Christ sins, right? I mean, maybe I was an anomaly, but before Christ, I sinned. Believe it or not, church, I sinned. I was a sinner. And I did what sinners do. I sinned. The problem is that oftentimes as believers, we're not focused on internal transformation of someone's heart. We're focused too much on trying to get them to stop sinning. And the only cure for sin is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Not a list of rules or laws that modify someone's behavior. The issue facing the the church in Acts, as we said just a minute ago, was circumcision. For us, it might be some other things. In Acts 15, Peter addressed it in in verse 8, and he said, God who knows the heart, stop right there, God who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did us. Just because they don't look like us, they do the thing, do things that you don't do, doesn't mean that they're not in relationship with Jesus. In Acts 15 here, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, they all spoke, even the Old Testament prophet, they quote their Amos, they all spoke the same thing. It's not about external appearance, circumcision. It's about heart transformation. And let me give you an example of what, what, the, what, like, what this looks like. As I said earlier, I grew up in a pretty different church than what Bridge is. And for me growing up, Christians didn't get tattoos, right? Like, if you got a tattoo, you had a one-way ticket, right? And it wasn't to heaven. It might have been to Las Vegas, not heaven. But Christians didn't get tattoos. That is external behavior modification. If I have a tattoo, it doesn't mean I haven't experienced a heart transformation, right? If you believe that you shouldn't get a tattoo, that's fine. Don't get a tattoo. But don't make it a law. Right? Let's not make it hard for the Gentiles to believe. I've heard believers tell an alcoholic on the street when we're street evangelism whenever I was in college. And I remember this because I was like, that's so messed up. I've heard believers tell an alcoholic, give up your alcohol and give your life to Christ. Church, we have to be around... We have to be unified around an internal transformation that says, come to Christ, let your heart be transformed. Then we won't have to worry about the, about the habits, of other, of habits of people because it'll take care of itself. Let's not make it hard for the Gentiles to believe. Let the Holy Spirit do his work of transforming the heart. I can think of example after example. I can think of... That I, I, a couple who were living together for years and they came to our church, not, not this church, the, another church, but anyhow, came to our church and they gave their lives to Christ and I heard so many good Christian people, even a topic in a board meeting one time was, look, they're living in adultery. We gotta get, we gotta get that, gotta, you gotta get that, get that straightened up. My response, let's give the Holy Spirit some time to work. And within a few months of them attending church and growing in their relationship with Jesus, and a few prompted conversations, 
that focus on biblical marriage and what the, what, what the scriptures say about what that looks like, within a few months, they got married. They have an awesome family. And God's using them in ministry. Believe it, God's using them in ministry, church. Can you believe that? But if we had just went to straight behavior modification and said, hey, you have to do this, right? You have to get married, so we're going to throw you a wedding. Without going through the teachings of, of how you, what does biblical marriage look like and, and what does that mean and what are you covenanting to in that with God, they would have done two things. One of two things. They would have done it out of direction of a human being versus the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Or we would have just made it hard for them to believe in Christ. The guy, the guy was resistant until the Holy Spirit began to transform his heart. And I think this last example I'm going to talk about this morning is probably going to be something that's going to really maybe be a little bit... Don't, if your toes get stepped on, I love you. Just remember that. Another example that is very real to us this year comes around the idea of like politics, Right? See, I think the Bible needs to shape how we think about everything. I think we need to learn to think biblically about everything. Does that make sense? Like, we need to learn to think biblically about everything. But for a lot of believers, certain positions become religious law. Like, your stance in the position has become a sign of whether you're in relationship with God or you're not in relationship with God. Like, if you believe this way and you take this stance, you are on your way to eternal life and you have salvation. But if you take this stance and you're going this way, or you believe in this way, you can't have a relationship with Jesus. There's no way that you can be saved. And maybe you're right about the things that you're talking about. But church, can we not make it hard for the Gentiles to believe? Why do we make the secondary thing the gateway to the first thing? Does that make sense? Our political beliefs shouldn't be the gateway to the gospel. The gospel should be the gateway by which our political views are shaped. Let's have those conversations and discussions, but let's do them the right way and never make our political views the main thing, the first thing. Let's have a conversation about the gospel. Keep it at the focus. Let heart transformation take place and watch how people's political views may or may not change. Because the Holy Spirit does the convicting. The Holy Spirit shapes our thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe everybody will ever agree with you. You know what? That's okay. Because if we look at, in Acts 15, there was some disagreement that took place, and they're like, hey, here's the things you have to do to keep unity in the church, right? <laughs> that wasn't just me, right? Okay. You may be divided on political views, but be unified around the gospel. The gospel is not change and come, but come and he will change. Let's not make secondary things become the lens through which we view heart transformation. Let's look at scripture and see what a transformed heart looks like. What fruit is developing? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. Love for God, love for others. These are all byproducts or fruit of a transformed heart. And this is the key. When a heart is transformed by the gospel, the external begins to look more like what is happening on the internal. Does that make sense? Let's not fall into the trap of losing focus by losing, a fo- losing our focus and, f- and focusing on behavior modification before we're sure of heart transformation. Let's be a unified church. Worship team, if you would come this morning. I believe as the big C church, right, as the church, we're at a very critical point. The church must be unified. We must let our preferences fall by the wayside for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of heart transformation. And I think we can all agree that over the past couple of years, there have been a lot that has grieved me, have grieved, has grieved me in regards to unity in the church, in regards to unity of, of, of believers. Grace versus law. Heart transformation versus behavior modification. So many people saying things that make it hard for others to believe. 
We expect behavior modification before we even approach heart transformation. And I truly believe that a church in motion is a church that has a unified passion for outsiders. A church that has a unified passion around the gospel of grace and is unified and has a unified focus on heart transformation. And maybe this morning you say, well, Pastor Rob, you forgot that there were two things that Gentile believers were asked to do. You said it earlier that they were to keep the moral law and not eat certain things because of offending the Jewish believers. By doing those things, offending the Jewish believers. Like, what about those things? Like, what, what, what do we do with those? Like, shouldn't we have to adhere to those same things as well? See, the spiritual leaders in Acts 15 said, do these things because it ensures unity in the body of Christ. Do these things because it ensures unity in the body of Christ. This morning, church, are we ensuring unity in the body of believers? You say, Pastor Rob, I share a passion for outsiders. I share a passion for the gospel of grace. I share a passion for internal heart transformation. We, I can agree on those things. But are you ensuring unity in the body of Christ? Do we have a known offense with another believer that we haven't dealt with? Because, I mean, that's basically what they're saying here. They're saying, don't do these things. Like, I need you to do these things. Because if you don't do them, you're going to offend the person another believer that's in your church, right? And you're going to knowingly offend them because you know how they feel about that. Do we have known offense with another believer that has not been dealt with? Acts 15, they came to the conclusion that unity is worth, unity is worth it. It says that all the people were encouraged when they read that there were only the two things that they had to do, Right? The unity was worth it. It encouraged the people. What do you need to do today that would promote unity with another believer and heal offense? Maybe today there's conversation that needs to take place. Maybe you need to forgive, or maybe you need to go, maybe you need to, maybe you need to forgive somebody, maybe you need to go ask for forgiveness. We need Jesus more than ever for unity to take place. In Acts 15, this debate. This issue could have stopped the church. And I can tell you, I know churches personally that aren't unified around these principles, aren't unified around these passions. And they don't make it. They don't make it. They die. I think about the church from when I was a youth pastor. I can think of other churches because they allow their preferences, their expectations, their version of law, allow the external appearance distract from seeing the gospel go forth distract from seeing true hearts truly transformed I don't believe that we can be unified in these areas without the power of the Holy Spirit working inside each one of us let's be an unstoppable church daily I need checked by the Holy Spirit right to keep me in alignment with truth Because it's easy to fall victim to your selfish nature. It's easy to fall victim to my preference. It's easy to fall victim to to focus on me versus them. It's easy to fall victim to somehow, if I just do more, if I just do more, there'll be salvation, right? Or God will be more pleased if I just do more of these things. Like, it's easy to fall victim to that versus making the gospel the primary issue. Father, I pray for unity in our body. I pray that we would be a church with a unified mission, a church with a unified passion for the lost, a unified passion for the gospel of grace, and a unified passion for seeing hearts transformed. 
Lord, I pray that you would let your Holy Spirit unify us as a body around these things. Holy Spirit, would you keep us in check? When our secondary issues take precedent over the primary focus of the gospel, would you correct us? Let us be the church that you are calling us to be. Let us be a church with a unified and clear mission of reaching our community, seeing your grace poured out and hearts transformed. And this morning, church, if you're here this morning and you are a believer and the church or church people made it hard for you to believe, I want to say sorry. I want to say sorry for making it difficult, for making the gospel something that it's not. And Holy Spirit, thank you for working in our in lives, regardless of our human abilities. And if you're here this morning and you aren't a believer, I would say don't let the secondary issue be a primary issue. The only real issue is your relationship with Jesus. And God wants to know you. He wants you to know him. And he wants a relationship with you. Jesus came to earth to pay the penalty for our sin. And he wants to come into your life, forgive your sin, and make you a new person. No matter how far from him you may feel, no matter how lost you may be, you don't need to clean up to come to him. He'll start cleaning when he comes into your life. And so this morning, if that's you, right where you're at, you can ask him to come into your life, to be your savior and your king. Invite him to be the ruler of your life. Put your faith in him. Jesus, I believe in you. Believe in what you did on the cross for my sin. Jesus, we surrender to you. We can't do any of this on our own. God, you have to be the center of everything that we do and everything that we say. And our thoughts... Spirit, would you have your way in our hearts? And it's your name I pray. Amen.